Andy was on the fence about allowing this to happen. This podcast is about its guests, and he didn't want to make it about himself. Myself and some others had to cajole, prod, guilt him into even allowing it. When Andy and Nikki started this podcast, the first question every one of my friends had was, when is someone going to interview Andy? No one was sure, but everyone wanted it to happen. After his interview with me came out, the idea of me interviewing Andy started out as a joke. Like many things in life, sooner or later the joke sounded more and more reasonable. After a while, the thought of anyone but me asking Andy questions and teasing his story out was something I didn't want. As a once fan turned close friend, I felt that I had a unique perspective on his life, and I wanted to help his story be told. I can also be persuasive, and that helped. There is perhaps no name in fishing circles that carries with it as much implication as Andy Mill. In the sport of fly fishing, his accomplishments stand alone, both in their extent and frequency, and the duration of his dominance in competitive fly fishing is without parallel. As Steve Huff defined the profession of a fishing guide with his hard work and determination, Andy Mill defined the contemporary role of angler as an involved and educated part of the team through his relentless pursuit of success. They tell you never to meet your heroes. I'm here to tell you that Andy is an exception to this rule, and I hope you enjoy what I consider to be the opportunity of a lifetime to sit down with a hero of mine and listen as he told his story. I hope you enjoy it. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. (laughs) There's something fishy going on here. All right. Um, Andy, I, Billy Ray, I have known by many names. Um, but I, I have to start the interview by telling you how much I appreciate you, um, sitting down to be interviewed by someone else. I know that this is your podcast and you and Nikki have done a great job interviewing tons of people. Um, and they're great people and great stories that are told the number one issue that I hear from people about the podcast that you guys put together is that people want someone to hear someone to interview you. They want to hear about your story. Um, and to give, to give the audience a little bit of background, Andy Mill, um, in the sport of fishing in the keys is someone that for me, when I first moved to the keys, his level of competition and the output of winning that you were doing with a lot of different people in the tournament scene, it, it was it was a lot of things, but for me moving down here, it was inspiring to watch. Everybody that knows you thinks you're a great guy. 
And everyone that I've talked to in the process of preparing these questions and getting your story together, and I've done a lot of work, I've talked to a bunch of the guides you fished with, everyone says how excited they are to hear you tell your story about what happened down here and the effect that you had on the fishing down here. Um, so thanks for allowing me to interview you after you interviewed me. Um, <laughs> and and this this interview is about you and your story and not just the effect that you had on the fishery down here, but the effect that you've had on the people down here. Um, so wow. that's the introduction. And I'm really... So that's it? Th this is over? It. That's it, Andy. You're <laughs> off the hook. Thank you. Um, oh, wait. No, I have 18 pages of questions to ask you. <laughs> Um, so let's start. Let's start early on. Um, you were born in 1953. Where were you born? Laramie, Wyoming. And what was your sort of childhood like? Excuse living there? me. I was born in Fort Collins, Colorado. And then we grew up in Laramie for about seven years before mm -hmm. or six years before we moved to Aspen. But okay. I was born in Colorado. And what was, did you grow up fishing? Were you from an outdoors family? You know, we, I, we didn't fish maybe a little bit in Medicine Bow outside of Laramie, Wyoming. You know, I very, vaguely remember um, the most prevalent uh, memories I have is once we got into Aspen. And that's when I started, you know, getting involved with fly fishing. But when I was a little kid, there's a couple of photographs of me with a fish, but I don't, you know, I don't remember that very much. It was not very impactful. Was that fly fishing or no just... that was just fishing with my dad okay you know me fishing up you know and so in your in your teenage years into your 20s that's when you got into skiing and for those of you that don't don't know andy was a competitive ski racer for a very long time um but did you did you fish before that yeah you know it's i'm very fortunate because uh growing up in aspen i was about eight years old um played a lot of baseball at the time and I remember going across near Wagner Park in downtown Aspen. And I saw this fly line horizontally being thrown back and forth. And, I, and it was like a, this big gravitational pull. And it was the great Ernie Schwiebert in town giving a clinic for Phil Wright, who owned the country store. So Ernie Schwiebert, when I got over there, long story short, he taught me how to move this rod and throw this line. And uh, many years later, he and I went to Alaska together. He used to come into Aspen, sleep on my couch, and then we would go up on the frying pan, and and uh, we had this relationship. And anybody who knows who Ernie Schwiebert is, he's one of the great um, entomologists. He wrote Matching the Hatch. He wrote Nymph, the book Nymphs, the two-book volume, 1,700 pages called Trout. My introduction to fly fishing was, was through his hand. And then Chuck Fothergill, he was very famous in the Aspen Valley. He taught me how to tie flies when I was like 12. So now I'm in, in the Aspen Valley in the summer. I'm already skiing. But in the summer, fishing meant as much to me as skiing meant to me in the winter. So I got involved at that age. But when I got involved, I got involved very heavily. With fly fishing? Yep. Okay. Um, and so your skiing career took off when? I started skiing at Medicine Bow when I was around seven, briefly. But when I got to, into Aspen, you know, now you have these big monster mountains. And uh, I was in fourth grade, eight years old, started skiing. But right away, skiing was not enough. I started skiing with the ski club, started racing locally. And when I was 12 years old, I won this race in Duluth, Minnesota. 
which was a, uh, an age category for the top racers in the country. So when I won that race at 12, I was basically the best skier in the country at the age of 12. So I was invested at a, you know probably around when I was like 9 and 10. But I didn't know. I mean, it was just local stuff. But when I became 12, then my, my perspective got a little bit more broader. Okay. And so when did you... Um when did you join the U.S. ski team? I was uh, named to the ski team when I was 16. It was called the Talent Squad. So the Talent Squad basically gave me a uniform, the U.S. ski team patch. And I'll never forget that. You know, I got this box and I opened it up and took the, the plastic off the sweater. And here this U.S. ski team patch was. And it was like, wow. I, I, you know, I mean, that's a, the first step of something really big in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, you have... Uh, in anything that we do, you have this image and this dream of skiing in the Olympics, but you don't think about it on a daily basis. So it's the journey like we have that we've seen in our fishing career. You catch a fish and you, you see this gold cup that some that people have spoken about. That was the first time it got real. So that this might be in, in, in skiing. You know, now when I'm 12, I won something pretty big. And now it became really, you know, prevalent in my mind that the ski team stuff was close. Mm -hmm. And when I get to be 16, I won some, a bunch of races and they named me to the team. So I was involved with the team at a fairly young age. So did that competitive drive that you have, which I mean, without exception, everyone that I've talked to about you has mentioned your drive to compete. Um, did that predate your uh, like um, being on the U.S. ski team? Or did that sort of happen at the same time? It's a process. I mean, you start winning at a young age and so you're already connected you know, right. I mean, I don't think it it, it, it escalated because I was already really fired up about the whole thing. You okay. know, I mean, I was pretty passionate all along, you so, know, playing baseball, fishing, whatever it was. I wanted to catch more fish. I wanted to, you know, hit home runs and I wanted to win ski races. Right. So talk to me about the years um, in the spring of 72. You're on the U.S. ski team. So between then and 1980 is sort of the bulk of your Right. Fish, uh, sorry, skiing career. Um, what what was that like? I mean, you you skied in some world championships. You were you skied in the Olympics twice, if I've got it right. Right. What was your experience like as a competitive skier? I look back at it now that I that I understand uh, excellence at a higher level and really profound excellence through fishing. And I didn't see that until my last year as a ski racer. And when I look back at my ski career now, I'm almost embarrassed about it. Mm. Uh, in the fact that, yes, I was, I was the national champion. I was the number one ranked downhill skier in the country for a number of years. Only four Americans can race in the Olympics. So that's a testament in itself, just a race in a world championship and in an Olympic event. And so for, from 74 to, to 1980, I was the top four American every year. And typically I was like the number one American, but, but compared to the big world of skiing, the international world and the Olympics, I was really nothing. You know, yeah, I got sixth in the Olympics in, in 76. It was the best American finish at the time ever. Is that when you broke your ankle and had to pack your... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and that's a, a story on unto itself, but I didn't really... You know, it was a lifestyle, but one of the most revealing things in that generation, the American team, we were really far behind the eight ball when it came to sophistication and, uh, and training. And I'll give you a prime example. I remember going to 
race in Val d'Isere in 1973. Now I was on the team racing the World Cup. We get to Val d'Isere and we'd been training all fall and we get there and I'm looking at a good friend of mine, Erwin Stricker from the Italian team. He's in a rubberized suit, a body condom, if you will. He had a helmet that with, had a fairing. His ski poles were wrapped around his body. He had a fairing b- between his knees and his ski boots. We're not racing in Val d'Isere. Was we're, that was that frustrating we're, to you no, to realize no, that? No, no, we're on we're on Jupiter. We're racing against aliens. Right. It's like, what is this? And the porosity of a downhill suit that's got threads. That difference between a threaded downhill suit and a uh, rubberized downhill suit is two seconds right. in that two minutes. Now I've got to give these guys a two second head start, and at sixty six. At 60 miles an hour at 88 feet per second, you're not going to catch those guys. How did that How did that feel for you, being competitive and wanting to win and realizing that other people just had better kit than you did and there was no way that you could compete against that? Did that drive you or did it, that frustrate it you? It frustrated you, yeah, hmm. you know, very much. And two, you know, um, I think our, you know, and look, I don't want to blame it on anybody other than myself because I too could, could have made much better decisions on my equipment in that period of time, my boot selection, my ski selection. So besides the lack of sophistication, we were never in a wind tunnel to refine our aerodynamic tuck position until after the Olympics in 1980. So my body position aerodynamically, I was really, I was really poor. Right. So I was giving up so much time when I was in a tuck position sliding across the flats. I was always pretty good when the when the hill was really steep and icy because aerodynamics didn't play much of a role. It had You had to be more of a technician, a better skier, and I was always pretty decent there. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, you know, look, I look back into skiing two Olympics and two world championships. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm proud of being there, but I'm not proud of, the athlete I was at that time. I made some bad decisions. I needed somebody who was smarter than me to help be my mentor, mm. to help me make assessments but and judgments. You, in, in 1981, you know, after you you almost left the team. I was almost kicked off. The, well, then, I was kicked off the team. Right, and you I, sort of I, made your way back. I did. I won a, uh, in 1980 after the Olympics. Right. Billy Merlt said, don't come back unless you come back after the last World Cup. And you went to Austria. 10. To train with those guys, the is fall, that right? Yeah, once I got back on the team, because after the Olympics in 1980, he said, if you don't come back from the last World Cup in Canada in the, top, in the first seed, the top 15 in the world, don't right. come back. And you did. So I didn't. I missed a gate and, and it was disqualified. But the last two races were not World Cup races. There were It was the national championships in Squaw Valley and a race the, the next day. And I wanted, I knew my career was over, but I wanted to retire as national champion, which I had, I won in 76, but in 1980, I got second in that first race. Mm-hmm. And that night I, you know, I would just, I, I was done. But the next day, you know, I just skied out of my mind and won the race by over three seconds. And the point spread put me back in the top 15 in the world and they couldn't kick me off the team. Right. So that next fall, now I had a new coach, an Austrian coach. I trained with the Austrian team. And that's team. what you, that's what, you know, you're sort of referring to when you said you didn't have a mentor and you, you were sort of set up for this to be the second phase of your skiing career. I had another chance. And then what happened in 1981? Well, in 1981, it's like, okay, I I just made my way back onto the team and I I can't fuck this up. Excuse the, the, you know, 
the profanity, but it was, I was, it was dire. And so I trained really hard. I changed equipment, got back to Rosinal skis and Lang boots. I had a new Austrian coach that was really current. To the stars he were starting current. to align. Yes. Right. It was, it was really, uh, you know, I had rededicated myself. I had a great mentor. He taught me how to hip angulate and it's a technical term in skiing. He took me to Europe. I trained with the Austrian team and I was always finishing like fifth in the time trials against the team. And then Uli Spies, an Austrian kid, say, hey, skis, t take a run on my skis. And, I, and then I started winning all the, all the time trials, all the runs. Mm -hmm. And I went to Rosinal. I said, I said, you know what? I'm gonna switch skis unless you can get me some better product. Long story short, I, I, my whole ski world was turned around overnight and I rededicated myself and all of a sudden I was skiing as well as anybody in the world. And then? I got hurt. I, I mean, I finished okay in the first race. I got fourth in Val Gardena, very difficult, really hard downhill. I got fourth there. And I knew I was going to win any day. And in Switzerland, the last race before Christmas, the ski fell off in a big compression. And I'd broken the course record five times in training that week. Every run, I was the fastest. It was going to happen. And then I tweaked my knee, went home, had my, uh, arthroscopic surgery. I went back to Europe two weeks later. I skipped Kitzbühel because that's a steep, icy downhill. My knee was still tender. I skipped Garmisch. That was a hard downhill. And I went in to Wengen, Switzerland, at the base of the Eiger. And there it's a higher elevated downhill, softer snow. And during the inspection, I looked at the last big jump into the finish and it's always been dangerous there. Mm -hmm. A lot of people get hurt there. And in, in the inspection, I, I noticed this jump is really big, but I hadn't, I, hadn't been, I hadn't raced yet since I had the operation. So I go back to the starting gate for the first training run and I told the coaches it was my left knee. I'm gonna go into the first right-hand corner as, as fast and as hard as I can. And I'm gonna test that leg. And if it doesn't hurt, I'm gonna, I'm gonna carry on. And I went into that first corner as fast as I could, you know, tipped it over, made a perfect, perfect turn. And then it was like game on, I'm back in the game. And I ripped that training run. It was like a race run. I was so happy, I was so full of life. And I was back, you know, I'd never been on top in that league and in that element. And I was, I know, I knew I was skiing the best in the world at the time. And I couldn't wait for the weekend to win. And I carried so much speed into the last jump. And all of a sudden I got there. I, I thought, oh my God, I, f I forgot. I forgot this monster lip. And I got launched 150 feet through the air, landed on the flat. I caught an edge and it pulled. You overshot the I, jump. Yeah, well, I, it just launched me. And it's a long, long landing. And then you, and then this flattens out. You into hit the on the finish. flat spot. And I, I landed on the flat and I couldn't handle the compression. I caught an edge. And it pulled me into this fencing head first and I broke my neck, my back and my leg. Do you remember much about that accident? Um, yeah, I, I didn't get knocked out, but I, I remember like I'm stuck in this fence and this guy and I'm out of breath. I mean, it just knocked me and I'm out of, and the this, this spectators just like banging me on the back trying to help me get air. And it was, he's hit me right where my back is broke. I'm going, no, 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 no. Don't hit me again like this, you know? And I broke my leg in a, and, I, and I tore all the ligaments in my knee. And I, I'm thinking as I'm laying there, I'm going, wow, I don't know if I can take that second run. This really hurt, <laughs> you know? And then I got up and I walked to the helicopter right. and there was a, there was a clinic mid mountain in Bengen. Um, by that time I got there, I said, I need to go down to Interlock in the, the main hospital. I said, mm -hmm. there's something really wrong. Did you know at that point that your skiing career was over? Yeah. Yeah. How did you feel about that? Um, I mean, that's gotta be hard, you know? It was, it was a shock. Um, 
I didn't really hit me until later. It's like it, but the realization that my new, but I've got a, there's a new life now. You know, I stayed in the hospital in Switzerland for a week, and I remember I couldn't, they couldn't give me any medication until they had taken the X-rays. And laying there, I, I thought, I got this. This knife is stuck in my back, and it's just killing me. And I asked the doctor. I said, and I know there's a translation issue. I said, how long is this pain going to be? And he said, probably six to eight months. I thought, oh, God, just shoot me. Hmm. But he was talking about recovery. Yeah. Um, and then I went back to South Lake Tahoe and Dr. Stedman, who was working there at the time, he operated on my leg. And, you know, I had, to, you know, it was a new life. So what was that new life? Um, I was married to a woman that was, you know, really a big issue. I had no money. I had no job. And it was like, okay, what am I going to do now for the rest of my life? And I knew I didn't have the mindset to work for anybody. Mm. Uh, and I thought the only way to, to make a, a good living is through exposure. And I'm no longer an athlete. So I thought of this, you know, barter syndicated TV show where I Skiing could, with Andy Mill. Yeah, Ski with yeah. Andy Mill was, um, was born. And I thought if I could own a five-minute TV show and teach people how to ski and newcomers how to how to walk uh, walk up a staircase in ski boots how to make the first turn how to slide how to stay warm how to layer how to ski the trees how to carve a turn sure you know how to catch air then I thought if I can do twenty ski tips and sell advertising inside that tip and and give that tip to all these ski areas around the country. So now those TV stations in those small ski areas, they've got free programming. Right. And inside that TV little clip, that five minute clip, I'd give them a free 30 second commercial that they could sell. So now they had free programming and they had something that they could sell. All they had to do is air my five minutes from start to finish. Mm -hmm. And then there, I sold an opening and closing billboard. I threw and I sold two 30 second commercials. And now my value uh, really was compounded because as an athlete, you're only, they only know when you win is when you're on the podium. But now having a TV show, they, all these perfect demographics, these, yeah. are, these shows are being aired in ski areas. So now all my sponsors, Ray-Ban, Ray-Ban was paying me 35000 a year. Fila was giving me 80000 to wear their clothing. Marker Bindings, 25000 The skis were 30. Now I'm making like $400,000 a year with a week of work, a week of editing. And it was, you know, it financially, was a, I, was, I was in the game. But it wasn't, didn't totally satisfy your competitive drive, did it? No. Yeah. No. And uh, there too... You know, the, Olymp the Olympics were upcoming, and uh, I was working for Golden Gate Productions and, and some of the networks to cover World Cup skiing as an announcer. Yeah. And I did the Olympics for CBS in 92, uh, which was Albertville, France, and then I did Lillehammer, Norway. And so for the next 20 years, I was in broadcasting. Right. You know, so on the side, I was going to the Olympics and doing all of these big events. And I had ski with Andy Mill, and I was I was cashing, how cashing often, out. How often during that time, from, from your injury in 1981 to the early 90s, that you were doing skiing with Andy Mill, that television show, and then doing the broadcasting, the commentating, how often did you think about what could have been in your skiing career? None. It Not was over. All. Okay. But the only thing I knew was... Um, after the fact, I knew that I had finally successfully figured out, the, I'd broken the code. 
Right. And and I challenged myself. And even though, even though I didn't win, I I had won in my heart because I knew if I hadn't gotten hurt, I would have won. Right. So in the '90s, you started fishing in the Keys, and I think you told me the first person you fished with down here was Bob Branham. Is that right? Fished with Bob Branham. Yeah, I mm -hmm. fished uh, the first time I threw a fly rod, a saltwater fly rod, was on the TV show Fly Fishing the World with John Barrett, and I saw a tarpon eat my fly for the first time on television. I, on television, wow. it's like, oh my god, I got to, I got to do this again. I got mm -hmm. this is like, oh, this is. So you you came down to the Keys, and you started fishing, and you started fishing with Bob Branham, and you also spent some time with Harry Spear right. early on, and he was. It, correct me if I'm wrong, a bit of a mentor to you. For sure. And and what was your experience like fishing with him in the early year, like sort of mid-90s, before you really tended towards competitive fishing? I, you know, I was still, um, I was back in the game, if you will. Mm. And it was not a a game of, of tournaments, uh, championships, wins and losses. I was back into the game of being connected to something that I really dug. Yeah. This is not, this was not trout fishing. That wasn't limited by your injury at all. No. I mean, this was, <clears throat> you know, this was skiing the Hanenkam where you, the average speed is 80 miles an hour. I'm back going 80 miles an hour with a fly rod in my hand, catching these big tarpons. So sure. now I'm connected. I'm seeing something like I'm connected to an animal. And I'm connected to a guy that knows the language and he can bring me to that fish. I did not, I couldn't sleep. I mean, I was like in all the way right now. Yeah. And so um, in talking to Harry Spear, um, something that he said about you was, um, and I have to look through my notes here, but he said basically when he first fished with you on a scale of one to 10, you were an 8.5 out of 10. First time you were on his boat. He was wrong. Well, <laughs> Just, you, can, you can bring that up with Harry. <laughs> um, but he also said something interesting. He said, if you showed him something, it was his. Which I... I, I mean, if he showed me something, yeah, I, I, if, I got it. If you were it. to show Andy something that immediately when you saw it, you would not only understand it, but take ownership of it and be able to apply it yourself. Not just how it was shown to you, but in other ways as well. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing that comes a lot from your athletic background and your ability to process... Um, you know, learn, like any athlete does, you learn how to do something and then you can sort of run with it yourself. Right. Um, but when, when did you fish your first tournament with Harry? Was that the spring fly? Yeah, we fished the spring fly. We'd fished about seven years, I think, together before we, you know, he invited me to fish the spring fly and we fished that. Um, we got second. Mm -hmm. We could have won. Um, Siska caught like a 12 and a half pound fish on like the last day, but I was, I was just honored to be in the tournament to get second was like, oh my God. Sure. Did you start at that point to realize that being competitive in fly fishing? Because a lot of people fly fish and they think it's, it is fun. I mean, it's a way to decompress and enjoy the outdoors. Um, but when did you start feeling the drive to compete with tournaments? Did that happen slowly or was there a no, moment? No, that was immediate. Immediate. Yeah, because I would already been, you know, Terry taught me so, so well about, not only just catching fish, but I think that he too know that together we could be a force. Right. And I think he was kind of grooming me to be his angler. Um, and I got that. And it was not about going out and catching fish. It was going on about going out and winning every day. Right. We were not just fishing. We were going out to win, whatever that meant. 
yeah. got two or three fish, but you, but you understand what I'm saying. Sure. So now we get second in the spring fly. And then that same year we fished the fall fly and we won that. And I was, you were all in, I was all in. And so at, at that time, and just to give the listeners a, an idea of, of what was happening with the, the tarpon tournaments specifically, because you, you won a permit tournament, you won bonefish tournaments, I think more than one. Um, Not only one one bonefish one tournament. One bonefish tournament, right. but the the bulk of your tournament success starting in two thousand was was with tarpon. Right, and, um, it, and you know what? Uh, too, we did get second three times in the spring fly. Right, you know that was one we never won, but you know was really the one that would have kind of. We were a bunch of tarpon guys competing in a bonefish tournament. Sure, but yet we still had success there. But the really the real juice, the real drug. Was the tarpon? Was tarpon? Currents. What yeah. is it about tarpon fishing that that spoke to you? Do you think? Um, I think you know. Yes, you can feed bonefish, but you don't see their mouth. Mm. You can see real clear water, shallow water, smaller fish, but with the tarpon, I felt like I I could communicate better with that fish. It was almost like bugling elk that I know now. I didn't know back then, but I, I'm speaking to an animal through my, my voice with a tarpon and through chicken feathers. I could tell that fish what I wanted him to do. I felt like I could control that fish through feathers. Yeah. And the bite is that result of that, of, of there communicating There is, there is well. a longer period of time when you're tarpon fishing, when you throw a fly down you, if you start at a stopwatch between when the fly lands and when the fish eats it, for tarpon, that number of seconds would be much higher than for permit or for bonefish Absolutely. or almost anything else. So do you think that that was part of what spoke to you about Absolutely. doing that? That communication that you're talking about is that duration of time that you had to really talk them into it? That's the initial appeal. And I think that's probably my favorite aspect of tarpon fishing is getting the bite because when they open that mouth, then you know you have done something successful. Yeah, it's a well. pretty, it's a pretty like, indelible yeah, it's you know, a confirmation it's a victory you, yeah you know then you have all the other aspects of of tarpon fishing that really have to be played out learning how to fight fish effectively yeah and as to, an athlete that's something that probably was appealing to you as well that you actually had to fight this fish right I mean, now a permit it just eventually is going to give up but a tarpon right. really requires that you best it's, it you, know? you just stepped the first foot was stepped into the ring now right. now the war was now played out yeah and uh, like Tom Evans, he always thought that his, I asked him, what do you think is the best aspect uh, of, of tarpon fishing? He liked pulling on them. You yeah. Know. But for I, you, I, it's I like the bite. Pull, I like pulling on them. You know, initially I like the bite because that is victory in itself. Hmm. But especially like, you know, later it was like, no, I'm taking that fly out of his face. No, I'm not going to break him off. Or if he breaks off, I got him because the nail nut was in the top of the rod. No, I didn't catch that fish until yeah. I take that fly out. So there's there's an interesting sort of moment here, and and as as someone who moved to the Keys and was you know paying attention to fishing in the magazines at that point it was prior to social media, like there was a time when when you were not just considered the best tarpon fisherman, but on paper, you and Tim and Paul and Doug and the guys you were fishing with were so far ahead of everyone else. And it wasn't just the fact that you guys were throwing the toad, which was sort of a new arrival on the scene, but it was this whole system of how you were fishing. Um, so just before we get into that, you fished one gold cup with Harry Spear. And how did you do in that? That was your first tarpon tournament? Yeah, right? it was. Um, and how was that? I think we got third or fourth. I broke a fish off and 
you know that cost is maybe a second but right azo um won by a fair by a lot and then and i was i you know i didn't know what the hell i was doing and the, the second year that you fished the gold cup was not with harry it was with tim hoover right who went on to become the guy that you fished in the gold cup for the next six years correct and he was a protege of harry spears exactly right and the first time you fished with him because harry had retired um and so you know the the footing is not exactly um, steady at the beginning of your tournament career in the Gold Cup. You're changing guides. And the first year you fish with Tim Hoover, um, you guys lose by half a pound. Is that right? Right. And tell me about how that felt. It was devastating. I mean, we should have won. Right. Um, you know, we caught a big old fish that was probably well over 100 pounds. Timmy gaffed it, slid it up to slide it into the boat, and he stopped briefly up against the gunnel the head the fish shook its head the fly fell out and the and then timmy dropped the fish and he swam off with our with our our gaff right and his glove and it's like, according to it's him it's like yeah it's like well, what? well no come back <laughs> you know so we get 200 points for a release but a thousand points swim right. away and we lose by five we lose by eight ounces and mm -hmm. And this is the biggest tarpon tournament in the world. Did that light a fire that was, I mean, what I, what I, I see, was pissed. Yeah. I was going like we had it. I did not sleep. I didn't, I did not. I stopped sleeping for the next 10 years. Yeah. But, um, I knew we were in the game and that was obvious, you know, that we had already done, we gotten second. I really felt we should have won and we should have won. We just had, you know, stuff happens when you're mm -hmm. out there. Um, but, my desire to win was insatiable, and I know it was for Timmy too. So we were the perfect team for that next number of years. Yeah, because I, in my conversations with Tim Hoover, he he arrived at a similar place to you from different you know a different angle. Sure. But what I see is two people that sort of arrived at this moment where, according to him, his main problem was he wasn't worried about anyone else. He was only concerned about himself. Um, and one of the things I talked to Chrissy, your ex-wife, about what was it like watching you compete during that time? And she said that one of the only things you ever talked about was the fish. And fishing these tournaments, I, all the competitors always talk about everyone else. They always complain about other people on the boats um, or other teams on the right. water. And I found it interesting because that, that sort of idea of staying present and only focused on what you can control it seems like partially by accident and partially by nature, you and Tim Hoover arrived at this time together in the Gold Cup. And then Paul Tejera, the guy that you were fishing with in the Golden Fly, I had a long conversation with him earlier. And he basically said the same thing, that his, you know, through different means, that his goal in those tournaments was to win, but there was a presence about what he was doing himself. So starting in 2000, you started to win and not just a few tournaments. You started to basically run all the tarpon tournaments except the Holly, which you didn't fish very often. You did win it with Paul. Right. Um, and, and that period of time, and I, I do feel a need to sort of reiterate to the people listening to this, that was unheard of. And not just because other people hadn't won in the past. You had Azo who had won three years in a row, and before that it was- um, Flutie. Glenn Flutie and Tim Mahaffey, right? Well, um, Tim Haffey had won one gold, or he won one gold cup, but he was winning more bonefish tournaments. I gotcha. So tarpon tournaments, it was really yeah. Azo, um, 
Flutie won five in a row. And the B- Golden, Billy Pate had won four. The Golden Fly was a new tournament about that time right. because there had been some some infighting in the Gold Cup. Some guys were upset that um, they weren't fishing on 20 pound and they felt they were upset with the tournament for whatever reason, um, which is not atypical in these events for people right. to be frustrated. And so you have a bit of a fractured community. You have some people fishing the Golden Fly, some people fishing the Gold Cup. And then you guys come in and and basically run the block for six years. Um, I mean, you know, the, the, the list of questions I have about that period of time <laughs> is, is endless. But but what what was it that you recall from that time? I just wanted to win everything. Why? Uh, winning breeds winning. But why and is why is that important to you? I think it was really important not only because winning breeds winning and winning feels so good, but I think it was a chance to um, I think it was a chance to have redemption from my lack of winning in my ski career. Even though my last year as a skier I did well and I'd gotten over the hump and I got hurt and it was gone and I was okay with that. But now I was winning and I, they were giving me the trophy. Like right. this is this is um, affirmation that you're the best, and so it gave me a second chance to do something really well. Um, when I left my ski career, I was a broadcaster for 20 years. Ski with Andy Mill made me money. Working with the networks gave me exposure, but I didn't want to talk about the guys that were doing what they were doing. You wanted to do it. I I missed being in the arena. I wanted to be throwing the punches. I wanted to be, you know, standing over the victim, you know, with the the mat splattered with blood. Right. And obviously I'm kind of, ex, you know, expounding on on that in kind of a weird way, but well, in, is, in the tarpon tournaments, to I wanted to destroy everybody. And when and when we walked into the opening ceremonies and the, the banquets, I knew I was going to win. Right. I I knew we were going to win. And I I didn't want to win just by a, a little bit. I wanted to just destroy everything around me yeah tim uh tim hoover said a great thing about you he said that in your ski career people were scared of you because you would die to win people in my ski career knew i would die to win but they weren't afraid of me winning because i didn't have all no he said they were afraid of you Oh, in the fishing tournaments? No, in the in the, your skiing career. Who's who said that? Tim Hoover said that some of the competitors were not frightened of you hurting them, but they were frightened that you, they knew that you would do anything without limit to try to well, work, I, including I, dying. Yeah, and I almost did. Yeah, I mean, I've had over twenty operations, thirteen knee operations, replaced knee, my back's been fused. You know, so yeah, you know what? I had the energy that you need. And the focus that you need, I just didn't have the intellect I needed as a skier. But when I became a tarpon fisherman with with Harry and Timmy, I had everything available, you know, to win, including all the practice days to refine mistakes. I don't think we had a, a weak link. And I've always assessed, how good are you? Well, what's your weakest link? And a backhand cast into win, forehand cast, underhand cast, however you want to play out all the idiosyncrasies and the dynamics of doing something well. I had, ma- I felt like I had mastered all the pieces of the puzzle and I was afraid of no one. Yeah. When Chrissy said that, when I talked to her, 
<clears throat> she said, you know, I asked her what she remembered about that time when you were fishing. And she she doesn't fish herself. Um, but she said that what she remembers is that her sensation was that you were trying to master it, that it wasn't about competition. It was more about trying to achieve a mastery Absolutely. of this thing. Yeah. Well, it's like speaking to your wife. You get focused and everything else goes away. I mean, yes, I was a father, a very diligent, loving father. I was all in. Uh, hopefully, Nikki can assess that. <laughs> I mean, that, you know, uh, and I think Chrissy, too, would, would admit that. But when I was away from the family, it was all about perfecting this new chance at winning something that if meant you, so much to me. If your skiing career hadn't been cut short, do you think that that competitive drive is so natural to you that you would have been this competitive and this successful in tarpon fishing? Or do you think it gave you some fuel it gave me to much, burn? It gave me more, it gave me a lot of fuel to burn. And I think that, I think getting hurt that last year and skiing with the Austrians and having that mentor, it really taught me about commitment mm. and being re, yeah, you can care, you can want as much as you want, but if you don't do the work, you're not going to win. Like you mentioned earlier, you can have the best fly rod and the reel and the fastest boat and the best guide. But once you get that, once he gets you into the arena, if you can't punch that fish out and bring him into the boat, you're not going to win. Yeah. And it takes a lot of personal focus on, on doing those things well. It takes a long time. And yeah, I mean, I, I uh, tied knots and flies and broke stuff. I had Chrissy hanging onto a scale for hours. How much am I pulling? How much am I pulling, you know? Um, but yeah, I was, um, I was r really driven. And I think that last year in the skiing helped me understand what winning, how to win. And, and be willing to do the work. Be willing to do the work, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. That last year was really important. So during that time, you you were fishing the Gold Cup with uh, Tim Hoover, and you were fishing the Golden Fly with Paul Tejera, and you were fishing the Holly with Doug for a period of time, Doug Kilpatrick. Right. And then at, you won four Golden Flies with Paul Tejera, and then at some point, he and Doug switched. Right. And they were, they Doug started fishing the Golden Fly with you, and you won with him, and you started fishing the Holly with Paul, and you won that as well. Um, and during that time you were still fishing the gold cup with Tim Hoover. Right. What was the experience like of fishing with those different guides? Because each team has its own dynamic. I mean, were you, how were you able to move back and forth between those guides? It was very easy because they were really good guides. They knew where the fish were. And I knew how to catch them yeah. and it was fun. I mean, they knew that my track record had already been proven and they had proven themselves. Um, Paul Tejera had won the gold cup with Flutie. Um, Doug had won a bunch of stuff. He hadn't won a tarpon tournament yet, but I had fished a lot with Doug practice days and having fun. And I knew he knew where to find fish and we caught a lot of fish together. So it's like, okay, I got a new captain to win with. It was easy. And, and not only that, I love these guys, you know, they, they are, they're like a, a family member to me. They, they all said the same thing about fishing with you. Um, I mean, they, the the main point of agreement is that they love you and that their friendship with you is something they value more than the fishing. Um, but they all said something else that was really interesting, which was they all felt pressure fishing with you because of how good you were. Um, were you aware of that yeah. pressure that you carried around? 
not with Paul, but Doug. Uh, I remember the first day running into the lower keys. He said, God, I'm so nervous. And I said, why, why are you so nervous? He said, I'm fishing with you. And I said, dude, we got this. Just go, let's just go fishing. Show me the fish and we're going to get them and we're going to win. Just show me the fish. But still, he hadn't won yet. And, and I, I understand now. I mean, I felt that with Rob when I won with him later. It's like when you're supposed to win, it puts a different kind of pressure on you. Well, and, and Tim, I understand that. Tim Hoover had a great, a great way of putting it. Um, I had a long conversation with him and he said his effect was contagious. He brought me faster towards winning. He accelerated the process and I wanted to perform for him. Were you, I mean, is that something that you did naturally? Or, I mean, because you're, you're an incredibly affable person. You love other people, but you're also very fixated on fishing well. And there's a certain, um, you know, there, there's two things going on there. In sure. one way, you're very self-centered about the task at hand. But most people consider a self-centered person to be an asshole. And no one thinks that of you. Everyone says you're incredibly focused, and especially the people that I've talked to during your tournament career, they talk about how fixated you were on what you were doing, but they all also say how great you were to fish with and what a nice guy you were and how, how much they value their personal relationships. Was that natural or did you, do, did you work on that no, I've independently? Always, no, I've always felt like, like I love people more than I love the outcome of, of what we do together. Mm. You know, I always felt that was more important. I would never, I would never yell at anybody. And if we had to fix things, we figured out how to fix them. But more importantly than winning was maintaining that great friendship that I had with everybody. But I think in, in Timmy's, Timmy's statement and what he said is that he, he saw, I know that he wanted to win, but I don't think he realized how much real passion and desire to win was until we started fishing together. And I think that's what he means by that because I was insanely driven. And I think that is contagious. There's a lot of osmosis that, that plays a role when you're with somebody like that, that too can win, but hasn't won yet. Yeah. Tim also said that you had an insatiable desire, the both of you, that we each had an insatiable desire that was identical. Yep. That makes and, a perfect team. Yeah. It really yeah. does. Um, and and what was it like? I mean, the, the, those tournaments back then, the Golden Fly was on 20, 20-pound um, tippet. The, Golden Fly, the Gold Cup was on 16. Did you, I mean, did you have any trouble going back and forth between those tournaments? No, I just fished the 20 like it was 16. Right. There's no need to try to pull harder. I mean, we were already catching our fish really fast. Sure. And what is it about fighting fish that you think... Like what were, what were some of the things that you were doing at that time that you feel had the effect of catching them faster? Just pulling your ass off. You know, I, I definitely pulled on scales. I understood what, what it took to break 16 pound test tippet, which mm -hmm. is really important. And I broke a lot of fish off on practice days, not on purpose, but I'd go to maximum and I'd fight them so aggressively. If I could catch a fish, a hundred pound fish and 15 minutes, I'd try to catch them in nine, mm. you know? So then you, f you find out how much, you know, your tackle is capable, you know, what, what, what's the, uh, what's the ability of your tackle. And then you would go over the edge and then in the tournament, you just back off that 10%. So you wouldn't break anything off, but you knew how, 
how fast or how, how hard you could pull. And also too, in doing that, you learn how to fight fish, the angles, the head, you pull this way, you pull that way, you lift. Um, and we were deadly. We really refined catching big fish quickly. Yeah. Um, what was, when you were competing essentially every year, I mean, you were multiple times every year that time, what, did that change your daily fishing in that period of time? When I fished every day like it was a tournament. Mm. You know, we'd fish a bit longer. We'd fish as soon as you could see until you couldn't see at night. Right. And I still fish that way with Nikki. And every fish is approached like this is the last fish I'll ever cast to. Mm. I mean, with that kind of intensity. So were there, you know, when I, when I watch people do something and they're very good at it, it, it looks to me like they're operating very far within their abilities. Um, in that period of time, were there, were, were there any instances where you felt like your abilities were being tested, that you were more at the outside or even fishing beyond your abilities? No. You felt like everything was within what you knew how to do? Yeah. And why do you think that is? Because we won. We caught them. Right. You know, if I felt like I was making, you know, mistakes mm -hmm. under pressure, bad casts, breaking fish off, then I'd be outside of the confines of my comfort zone. Right. But my comfort zone, I think, was was out there to the point that I could really push myself hard and it, and it was containable. Right. So you never felt like you were pushing yourself beyond. I was what you were... I was trying. Yeah. I was always trying to push as hard as I could. But how hard can you push? How hard can you pull on a fish? Right. You see what I'm saying? Sure. I mean, you know that. Look, when Rick Bannister broke the four minute mile mark, there were another. 10 guys that broke the four minute mile in the next year. Um, there are a lot of people in this world that taught others how to do things well, you know, that raised the bar. And Al Fluger once said recently about, you know, certain people or like Flip Pallet said something about Al Fluger when Al Fluger would do something, Flip said, you can fucking do that. You know, so there's always somebody doing something, catching, you know, hooking 15 and catching, catching 14. The yeah. numbers game. Now sure. all of a sudden you're realizing instead of jumping five in a day and catching two, that was big in a certain period of time. Now we could hook 15 and catch 13 or whatever those numbers were on any given day. Mm -hmm. So I know people were going, oh my God, these guys are, they're doing that. And we were those guys doing that. Yeah. I mean, but knowing where that limit is, is the hard part. For a lot of people that's difficult. I mean, you see it all the time with anglers. They they cast too early or they pull too hard, but just the intellectual understanding of where those lines are and that you're able to maintain that for that duration of time. I mean, you know, it's to me, it's very impressive. And I'm well, sure to a lot you. of other people. Thank you. Know. you. I, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know if we could have gotten a whole lot better. Timmy was really good. We caught a lot of fish. Yeah, you can't catch every fish that comes by your boat. You, you think you can when you're making that cast. You know, we were breaking hooks. Um, you know, we were really testing tackle. We didn't, you know, but tackle, the rods were great. The reels were great. We caught a lot of fish. We won a lot of tournaments, but we always tried harder. You yeah. know, you'd always try to make that cast a little bit harder or further into a certain wind. But the thing is, is what's really important is understanding what's realistic. So you wait for your shot. Right. I know I can't make that shot. I know I can't throw it 120 feet. 
And what's really important too, yes, I can throw 90 feet, but if I hook that fish at 90 feet, there's so much stress or stretch, I'm going to hook him, but he's going to fall off the hook when he jumps. So now it's understanding the dynamics of how to catch a fish, when you want to catch that fish. Where is that shot? Wait, Harry used to say, wait for your shot. I could see the fish. I could make the shot at 70 and 90 feet. He said, wait till there's 60. Slide it in there. Now you're not going to miss. Your, your cast is going to be accurate. When he bites it, you're going to set the hook. The hook's going to go right to the bend, and you're going to catch that fish. He used to say, one, one cast, one fish. So most people cast too early. They got to cast again. The angles change. The fish feels the fly line, and you, you don't get the bite. Right. That's what he taught me. So there's a limitation to everything, and there's a barrier about pushing the limit. But then it becomes realistic about how far is that limit. Now you fish inside the confines of what that limit is. And that's what I think makes a really good guide and angler. Interesting. Um, did you, uh, sorry, I'm, I have a question here written down. Um, when, you, when you hook a fish, what, what is it that goes through your mind when in that moment, you know, you've built up to this moment and you hook a fish? What are you thinking about in that, in that time? Nothing. Nothing. I know what to do. Right. There's no conscious thought. It's like skiing at, at 80 miles an hour and I go rolling into a corner. I know what to do. Sure. I'm not going to say, okay, I got to tip my ski. I got to lean in. I got to counter the centrifugal forces. You know, I you, know, you know what know to do. Do it so much. The fish bites the fly. I get the slack out, get the rod up against my waist, hang on with my stripping hand. Right. And I just seat that hook and hold the fish. And he shakes his head. He seats that hook. I clear my line and away we go. There right. is no conscious thought. You just react. Sure. This, this period of dominance in the tournaments um, came to an end in 2006. What was that like? What what factored into that for you? Uh, it was an avalanche of of a lot of stuff. Life got in the way. Mm -hmm. uh, I lost my guide. Timmy went. He went on, and right then, uh, you know, Chrissy decided not to be married any longer, and that uh, that was really hard. And in our conversations about that, that happened during the Gold Cup. Yeah. Anyway, no, it's all good now. Yeah, it's all good. It is. It's very good, and she, it was it was good then, and it was difficult, but you know, um, like you said in our podcast, addiction just happens. Sure. Life crashes. But you kept going. Happens. You kept going through it. Yeah, but I, I got you know it was no longer the same. My life was no longer the same. You know, I lost my guide. Um, my family, sure, I still have my family, but I lost my wife. I lost my kids. I lost my dog. I lost my house. I lost one of my best friends. And it's like, by fishing, I, who cares about fishing? Hmm. You know, I'd go fishing, and, and Doug Kilpatrick, Kilpatrick, when he was going through an issue. You know, he said, I just want to be on the water. I, I couldn't be anywhere. I'd get on the water and I'd just start crying. I'd say, I got to go home. 
right. you know, so there was this abyss for about three years that, that really was hard. But, you know, and towards the end of my, my fishing career, you know, I fished with Dale Prez for two years and, and my life was just upside down. It was just, I'd fallen off a cliff. Um, but it was interesting, all the people that I talked to who, who had these, this great tournament run with you, um, they all stuck by you during that time. And, oh, yeah. and were your were your closest friends? Absolutely. Or some some of your biggest supporters in that time. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, Doug Kilpatrick called me every week. Tahira yeah. would call. Tim. You know, I mean, that's what that's who we are. We we are a family. Sure. You know, if I look around down here and I see all the guides and all the anglers, I might not have, you know, spent a whole lot of time with everybody, but I know that if Simon Becker were to call me, I've never fished with him. He knows I'd be there. Yeah. And that's what fishing and tournaments do. Fishing in general won't do what tournaments do. Fishing in general, you know everybody and all the players and everybody's out there fishing. We have the same passion. But when you get in a tournament, then you become brothers, if you will. Sure, you're, you're competing against each other, but you come back to the same dock. You leave from the same dock, and now there's a synergy. And everybody understands that synergy in your Well, it's, I mean, some of the people that, you know, that I fished against in these tournaments that you have these battles against, especially if you're pitted against one another. Um, yeah, there's a closeness that happens that you can't find any other way, right. even though it doesn't make sense. You think, well, you're competing against someone, right? but that it just sort of bonds you in a, in a way that you're talking about. Yeah. Go yeah. to the NFL hall of fame induction ceremony. Were you, were you surprised at, at, at that, like the level of those personal relationships in this sport? when they when they came when they mattered most i wasn't even thinking about it look i was a, a ship at sea with you know taking on water i was sinking mm. you know i had no chance of recovery um and i had no way out i remember going to the my therapist the third the first time and, and crying you know nonstop. and i asked her it's like you know when i broke my my back you know in switzerland how long is this going to take he said six months i said you know kill me and i uh, asked the therapist how long is this pain gonna gonna subside or when will it subside and she said maybe two or three years i said are you serious and she said maybe longer and it it was i mean people would ask me three years later how you doing i'd just start crying like mm. now it's right. been 16 years sure but pain is pain is real pain hurts but how did you because you're you're past that now yeah but i still cry sure but that's your your life is as as one of your friends you have a great relationship with your family you have a great you have people in your life that care about you my ex-wife yeah yeah absolutely. i mean i she had incredibly nice things she said the first time she played tennis against you your serve was better than hers and you've never <laughs> well, played tennis before well, that's not saying a whole lot <laughs> Wow. Wow. <laughs> but so how did you how did you make it? I mean How did I make it good? Yeah. I woke up one day and I said I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Hmm. You know, I wrote I read a really good book called When Things Fall Apart. Right. Which I gave to Doug Kilpatrick, which helped him. And I just you know, I was just tired. I was just tired. And you know, at some point life goes on. Yeah. You know, there's a new chapter. You turn the page, you wake up and you say, you know what? Fuck it. And I'm going to go that way. What a life it is because you, yeah. came, you came back to the tournaments in 2015 fishing with Rob Fordyce. And I mean, from the perspective of someone that was fishing in that tournament and sort of hearing the chatter about it, everyone was looking at you. 
to see because, how I do? Of or? course, yeah. Well, yeah. not to see how you do necessarily. I mean, that's part of it in a tournament, of course. Right, sure. But but you hadn't fished a tournament for close to 10 years at that point. Quite a while, yeah. And, and you sort of came back and you won on the final day. And not, yeah. not only did you win, <laughs> <laughs> but you won you won with the cameras rolling on on that Silver Kings television show. Yeah. What was that like for you? It was interesting, you know, trying to win a tournament with a camera right next to you and the fact I'll that, bet. you know, um on a fun day of fishing you can talk about what you're doing, what you're seeing, what you're experiencing so the audience can understand and and get a little bit more involved. But I I kept thinking to myself, don't get fancy here and try to show off and break this fish off. You know, so I was really trying to stay focused and it was really difficult because they were there. Right. And fishing with Rob, I mean, I gotta, I gotta tell you, um, that was really generous of him to ask me after all these years to fish that tournament. You know, I'd been out of the game. Right. But we'd always spoken about, you know, fishing together uh, and versus fishing against each other because we were, you know, he and Carlos and, and Timmy and I, we were always kind of doing battle. And I said, yeah, you know what, let's give it a go. My son was fishing in the tournament. Rob asked me, you know, one of the great tarpon guides of all time. Sure. I said, yeah, let's, let's go. Let's try it. Yeah. Did you, uh, was it vindicating in some way for you to come back and win that tournament? No. No. I didn't need any vindication. Right. But I'll tell you, um, you were there. Yeah. You know, at the awards presentation, I, I was crying like a baby because it was... Uh, a realization that I was never going to be in that position again. I, I was never going to be. There's only your 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 window of winning only lasts so long, and then the torch is passed, if you will, right? Or your time is expired. I think that's kind of what I mean about it being vindicating. I mean, not that you need to prove how good you are, but was it was it especially meaningful? Maybe for the reasons you hugely. described. Yeah, it was hugely rewarding because. It was a confirmation that I could still do it mm -hmm. after, you know, I was out of the game for a With long the time. With the fishery changing and the tactics right. changing. You know, tarpon fishing, when you do it so long and so well, I don't think the game has changed that much. The only thing that's changed are my eyes maybe a little mm -hmm. bit. You know, understanding the distance between where that fly landed and where the feed begins. Sure. But I think if you got good fishing, I, I think I can still fish really well. Yeah. But why I was crying so heavily in that awards presentation is I, I realized that instead of getting out of a game and finishing tenth and eleventh and twelfth and finally you retire, I had I had won, and I was basically saying goodbye. Right. And knowing that I was never going to be able to win again at that level. Wow. Um, so talk to me about your life now. How, how does fishing fit into your life now? Because it's a big change and people, I, I see it all the time with anglers that get really heavy into the tournament game and it consumes them, which it, it, it always does. And then they have a hard time, you know, unclipping from that and continuing to fish for fun. Right. Um, but you seem to have a great relationship with fishing now and you fish with Nikki and that's a big part of your, what fishing is to you now. Right. Um, it's, it's so great. I mean, to tell you the truth, you know, throughout life, obviously it's a big book with many chapters and some chapters are kind of ugly as you know, as well as anybody. And you, you get through those and the next chapter might be as, as great as it's ever been. Um, and now my life is as perfect as it's ever been. And it's really hard to compare one stage to the other because it's comparing apples to oranges. They're both great. 
but my comfort zone inside my skin is as great as it's ever been. I know who I am, what I stand for. I know who my family members are. And I know, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I've got a great woman in my life and fishing is as perfect for me as it's ever been because I'm not insatiably trying to chase something that I, I can't catch or haven't caught yet, like a trophy, like a gold cup. My relationship with my son, um, it's as perfect as, as I could. <laughs> Here we go again. But, you know, I mean, my a lot of parents will say my, my son is my best friend. Yeah. But are they really? You know, and... You know, so like with Nikki and I, we do this, this podcast. We we six we fish for six weeks in the spring. We all cut in the fall. You know, uh, I've got my pal. But fishing for me is just so perfect in that we just go fishing, and he's so damn good. Yeah, yeah he's he's refined. You know, all of his weak links and it, it, the idiosyncrasies to do well. And would you win. would you consider your relationship with him to be your greatest success? Oh, absolutely, without question. Yeah, yeah, I've said that before. Sure. Is there anything looking back on your competitive fishing career that you wish was different? No, maybe, maybe I wish I could have won the spring fly <laughs> once. I've had the most perfect life in so many yeah. ways. I really have, you know, and I think that, you know, fishing and tournament fishing and, and doing what I did in the tarpon world, I think I'm, I think I feel better about, you know, what I've done in fishing as a whole in that we, I had a fishing show for seven years. We traveled, we did 81 shows around the world. My relationship with all my friends in fishing, all the guides I fish with around the world, the book I wrote, you know, a passion for tarpon and now this podcast and this podcast, I think in the long run is going to be very meaningful because we are collecting history. And fishing stories that are, that are going to pass are going to go away. Yeah. And and I want to hear the stories from all the icons and all the Hall of Famers out there. And um, you know, so if you take a look at what I've done in the world of fishing, is is quite plethoric. Yeah. And and kind of kind of a, a good spectrum. It's not one dimensional. Yeah. Um, you know, I I had a, a great one of the great opportunities. Um, that I've had in general is is the opportunity to call so many different people um, preparing for this interview and figuring out the timeline of, of your story fishing down here and talking to people that knew you. And like any friend, it's always, I always have a great interest in my friends. Um, and it's sort of a weird thing to call people and talk to them. And I was thinking about when I talked to all of these people who all reported such great things about you, not just as a fisherman, but as a human being. Um, and one of the people that I talked to was Tim Hoover. And we had a, a really long sort of great conversation about his story moving into the tournaments and just how meaningful that time was for him. And he said something, and I, I think it's a good, a good thing to close with. And I, I really, I, I love the way that he said it. Um, and this was in the context of us talking about the Gold Cup. Um, and we'd been talking about tarpon fishing for you know, probably an hour and a half at this point. And uh, he said, I'm more grateful to Andy for what he did for my life than anything he ever did for me in the Gold Cup. And I, you know, I think that's an incredibly generous thing to say. And he really meant it, you know. Um, and that the one thing I can tell you is that that 
that's the best way that I've heard it put, but that was put in different ways from every person that I talked to in the process of preparing for this. So I know that you're proud of your tournament success and you have every reason to be. Um, but for me, as your friend, that's the thing that sticks with me the most after talking to all these people. So thank you very much for sitting down and, and doing this. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> you, do, you shouldn't be. <laughs> you shouldn't be. <laughs> well, thank you, Nathaniel. And Absolutely. Uh, the deal was that I'd do this with you uh, after you won the gold cup. Right. So now you're in debt. So we know you're. So, so we know you're a cheater, and you broke the rules. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Um, absolutely, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm really, really honored to call you and Nikki both really close friends. And, uh, you know, this started likewise. out as a joke, you know, like, oh, I should interview Andy. And then the more that I think we talked about it, the more, at least the more interested I became in it. Yeah. Um, and it's been, it's been a really, um, you know, enlightening experience to talk to people and to talk to you and hear your perspective on this stuff. Uh, and I do think, I know this is your podcast, and I know that the purpose of the podcast is for you guys to collect stories that, that might not be told um, because a lot of the people that operate in this game are not on social media and they have these great stories. There is no question in my mind that you fulfill all of that criteria as far as someone whose story needs to be told. And I'm, I'm really like deeply honored that, mm. that you allowed me to be a part of this and to ask you these questions. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for sitting down with me and being in the hot seat for a while. <laughs> Switching seats. Well, Nathaniel, you're you're a great pal, you know, and I would not have allowed just anybody to interview me. And I feel kind of embarrassed that I'm being interviewed on my own podcast. I don't you know. think you should at all. I mean, like I said, it's the number one thing that I hear from people. So Well, thank you very um, much. And, yeah, and, and Nikki and I both hold you in such high esteem as not only an angler, but as a friend as well. Well, thank you. And I hope you've done a lot of thinking about what your hot tip is going to be, because we're going to shoot that next. So everyone listening at home... <laughs> Get ready for Andy's hot tip. It's <laughs> not that. actually hot in terms learn, of temperature. Learn, it's just hot, like learn metaphysically. How to, learn how to not to cry on camera. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to do that. Um, anyway, Andy, thank I love you, you buddy. I thank you, you so too. much. You know that. Yeah, we'll talk to you Thanks soon. Pal. All right. Andy's life is large, and when I was talking to members of his family and friends while I was researching for this interview, one thing came into focus repeatedly. Andy is loved. He is determined toward and focused on his own goals, yet welcomes everyone around him into their own pursuits. He lives at the intersection of his own drive and his encouragement of others, creating a personality that is at once predatory and protective. He is the only one of his kind, but never alone. The life he's led is still in gear, with new challenges and blessings to come. All the while, he's hanging his head out of the window, grinning like a madman, happy for the wind in his face. So it's just a ride.